Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Today, we celebrate a few people who work behind the scenes of your favorite shows to make them great, like intimacy coordinator Amanda Blumenthal. We use barriers for if it's a simulated sex scene, and we make our own often. Uh, it's not something you can just go buy on Amazon. Um. <laughs> and Felicia Leatherwood, hairstylist to the stars, one of which is Issa Rae from HBO's Insecure. It's been fun because you get to see with curly, kinky, coily, wavy hair can really do. And Tom Hovey, the illustrator for The Great British Bake Off. Our cakes are meant to represent their intentions, you know, not what they actually created. So there's full artistic license from our point of view and, you know, and I take as much of it as I want. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Kyone Wolf. Come backstage with me on Audacious after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. What do an intimacy coordinator, a hairstylist, and a food illustrator have in common? This here show. Today, we go behind the scenes to meet people who make the shows that you love really, really great. You'll hear about the power and the beauty of natural hair from the hairstylist for actress Issa Rae. And you'll find out how the food illustrations are done for the Great British Bake Off. But first, I hadn't heard the words intimacy coordinator until I was watching one of my favorite shows, High Maintenance, on HBO. In one episode, two people meet at the craft services section of a film set, and they get to know each other. I'm Kim. Oh, sorry. Evan, hi. Hi. Um, so what, what do you do on this? I'm the intimacy coordinator. Wow. Int- I didn't realize intimacy could be coordinated. Intimacy must be coordinated. So how do you do it? Boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. So what do you do when an actor is uncomfortable with something? They don't have to do it. If it's not good for you to have your breast touched or your butt touched for whatever reason, for whatever reason or for no reason, and you don't have to tell me the reason, then uh, guess what? You don't have to have your breast touched or your butt touched. We will find another way to tell the story. I had to know more about this job. How exactly does coordinating intimacy work? And how do they agree to the choreography? And what happens when someone gets aroused? Amanda Blumenthal knows all about it. She's coordinated hundreds of scenes for shows on HBO, Showtime, Amazon, and ABC. And she's the founder of Intimacy Professionals Association, That's not only an agency of intimacy coordinators, but it's an outfit that trains people in this work as well. But let's back up. I asked Amanda to talk about what exactly an intimacy coordinator does. The job of an intimacy coordinator is to help create a safer environment on set for actors and also crew members um, when they're engaging in hyperexposed work. So that includes things like nudity, simulated sex, other types of intimate content, while also helping the director to tell their creative vision. Your work is often 
uh, analogized to stunt coordinators. Why do people make that connection? What's the overlap and what's the difference? We both deal with safety. So stunt coordinators deal with obviously physical safety during stunts. We also deal with physical safety, particularly with intimacy work, because there are physical risks that can happen depending on what kind of scene you're doing. Um, but we also deal with mental and emotional safety when we're working with actors. So that's probably the biggest parallel. We also both are able to help with choreography and things like that if a director wants us to. And obviously we work directly with the cast and the director. So there's a lot of parallels. We just do intimacy and they do stunts. Talk me through what it's like doing what you do. Where do you even start? <laughs> Every project is usually very different, but in general, the prep process is we read the script, we do a breakdown, we meet with the director to talk to them about the scenes that have intimacy in them and we get an idea of what it is that they want. We then go and talk to the cast members about the intimacy scene, see how they feel about what the director is looking for, if they have any questions, concerns, any boundaries they want us to be aware of. And if there's any discrepancy between what the two parties want, the intimacy coordinator is there to help kind of act like a mediator to come to a resolution where the director is able to tell the story and the actors are feeling respected and not being asked to do something they don't feel safe doing. We work with the costumes department. We work with props. Sometimes we work with makeup if we're using a pubic wig or... Is that a call a merkin? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then we also uh, work with um, typically like a production supervisor and the legal department on the nudity riders, which are the legal contracts that performers sign um, saying what it is that they are okay with showing on screen. We talk more about the the ways to conceal the genitalia of the actor, the the stuff that goes in between. Tell me about some of those things. If we're doing simulated sex, we'll put in a barrier. Those things are typically made out of like, um, we make our own often. Uh, it's not something you can just go buy on Amazon. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we make them out of yoga mat and things like that. And um, so, because it has to be lightweight, but it also has to like have some sort of padding in it and be hygienic. But then when it comes to modesty garments, they're often just like really small pieces of fabric that are taped on to the performer in order to cover their genitals. And that's so that their genitals aren't actually being shown on screen, but also because we never want any genital to genital contact between performers. How do you deal with arousal when it when it happens in any performance. I mean, obviously, you don't necessarily mean to, but the body often has a mind of its own. So how how do you deal with it when a performer is aroused and you got to do something? Whenever I'm in a situation where a performer does have some kind of arousal response, I like to talk to them about it using this framework of a concept called arousal non-concordance, which is that just because the body is having a physical reaction to something doesn't indicate necessarily wanting or liking the experience. You've placed the body into a sexualized situation or something like that, and it's starting to respond. Just because someone's responding doesn't necessarily mean they're really into it. And for a lot of performers, they find that really reassuring to hear because they may not actually be turned on by the situation or they may feel out like they're not in control of their body. And so understanding that, you know, it's not their fault, that's what's happening, um, can be very reassuring. 
A lot of people use humor when they are uncomfortable, which is why I am hilarious when I have been hospitalized. But the humor in your realm could also cross some lines. So talk about how people use humor, both you as an intimacy coordinator and the actors and people on the set. How do people use humor? I personally stay away from humor until I know the people I'm working with because it can come across the wrong way and you don't know how people are going to react. So unless I've been working with someone for a while, I typically keep it pretty professional. Um, when I'm working with a new casting crew, when I'm around, people tend to be very kind of uptight. <laughs> people think we're part of HR, which we're not. <laughs> And so people will be like, can I say this? Can I say that? And I'm like, you can say whatever you want. Just like be respectful of the people here. So there, people do a lot of like self-policing in my presence. Many intimate scenes are consensual, but of course, many are not in the context of the story. Um, talk about how you would work with these actors during scenes of non-consensual sex differently than consensual ones. Whenever we're doing scenes of non-consensual sex or sexual violence or anything like that, I think it's really important that the scenes be choreographed. And I don't insist on all scenes being choreographed because that's not how every performer or how every director works. But I think that for those kinds of scenes when there is a different level of physicality and also a different level of safety that needs to be considered, it's really important that we choreograph it ahead of time and that there's a plan. And um, when we're doing those kinds of scenes, I also like to use a safe word for the performers just in case something starts to go sideways. Do you always use the same safe word? I like to use red as a safe word, but I leave it up to the performers because it has to be something that it will be easily like accessible to them in the moment. And that word won't necessarily resonate with everyone. And then also having a conversation with the director about trying to limit the number of takes and setups that we're doing because oftentimes because of the physicality of the scene, performers start to get tired very quickly. And when performers are tired, they're more likely to get injured or something bad to happen. Um, so it's really important that we have a plan. We're minimizing the amount of time that we're spending in the scene and we're, you know, setting up a safe container for that work to happen. You know, instinctively, I feel like you have to take care of the person who's playing the victim, but you also have to take care of the person who's playing the perpetrator. Oh, absolutely. And I think a lot of people don't realize that for someone to have to go into the headspace of playing a perpetrator, it messes with you <laughs> like it really does. And so I think it's important to pay equal attention to all performers in those kinds of scenes. What do you do when actors aren't really good at knowing their boundaries or they don't really advocate for themselves? It's just not the way they're wired. They don't have any practice doing it. And there's this sort of soup that they're swimming in where they don't really know if it's okay or how to say no. How do you coach them? What do you say to them? It's usually pretty clear if there's something that someone really doesn't want to do. I'll usually... Like, how is it clear? Either through body language or like really long pauses where they're like, well maybe and it's like we can explore that a bit more through conversation and figure out 
you know, if, if they're open to it, it's like, is it a maybe because there's something that, you know, we can change and then it becomes a yes, um, or is the maybe really a no? Um, so there's like, you know, some exploration that can happen there, but I mean, sometimes, especially with younger performers who they just don't have the tools yet in their toolbox to know how to advocate for themselves or to even know what their own boundaries are. Cause they're still so young in those kinds of situations. A lot of it is keeping an eye on them, seeing how they're reacting to doing things. And then as we go along, we can always change things. I always tell performers, you're allowed to change your mind at any point. So if we're, say, doing something with some kind of a scene with some kind of groping or something like that, and they're clearly like tensing up and it's like it's clearly not working for them. And it's probably also not working for the scene, if that's the case then we just have a conversation about it and change, you know, the choreography and the blocking and things like that. And um, it's also very informative for performers because they learn, they start to learn, you know, as they go through what are their boundaries and things like that. And sometimes you have to try things out and decide it's not for you. You've worked on, among many shows, The L Word, which focuses on the LGBTQIA plus community. So you're working not only with intimacy between people of the same gender, but folks who are trans, non-binary, and of course, a asexuals are doing sex scenes too. So how is working with folks on the LGBTQIA plus spectrum different from working with cis hetero folks? I've worked on a lot of like queer oriented projects and we've been really lucky in that a lot of the directors and producers and writers and things like that have, have been queer themselves. And so there's like a different level of understanding when on those kinds of projects about, you know, how would two gay women have sex or how would, you know, someone who is trans experience like their first sexual experience or something like that. As an intimacy coordinator, a lot of what we do in terms of training is understanding the gender and sexuality spectrum, because when we're on set, we have to be able to assist in providing information on how do we tell this story in the most authentic possible way. In terms of like how we actually do the scenes, it's not too different at all. But as an intimacy coordinator, you have to make sure that you're educated and you're continuously learning because things change very quickly in those communities. Now that I've been talking with you and researching you and the work you do, it baffles me that your field is so new that like stunt coordinators, it should have been around for a long time. And I frankly shudder to think about what's gone on without people like you there to help keep things consensual and safe. So how did all this go before your field started to grow? It would, I mean, it was really hit or miss experience, I think, for a lot of performers. And it really just depended on who you were working with. Some some directors are, are just fantastic at directing intimacy, and they were basically already doing the job of an intimacy coordinator to a certain extent. And costumers and other departments were also kind of helping fill in the different pieces that we now do. But sometimes you didn't have people who were doing that for you. And so I think for a lot of, for some performers, they would show up and the director would be like, okay, just go work with your scene partner and figure this out and come back and let's shoot this. Or you all know the lines, right? Let's just go do it. Which is, which is wild (laughs) because it's just like, it's setting people up 
to, you know, have an accident happen or, or be traumatized or have something happen. So I think I've worked with so many performers who are like, let me tell you how many bad experiences I've had because I've been doing intimacy for 20 years and it's, some of it has been really awful, but some people have had great experiences. So it really just runs the gamut. I know I'm not alone in this conversation that we both think and many people think that this job should be wherever there is intimacy being filmed. And as far as I know, HBO is the only network that is committed to having an intimacy coordinator there whenever intimacy needs to be coordinated. Why do you think that is? Why haven't so many more networks with all the money they have committed to having someone like you there? Since 20, uh, since late 2018, HBO has required on all of their shows that have intimacy work, that intimacy coordinator be present. And as the whole intimacy coordinator community has actually been kind of surprised that no one else has jumped on as well. It's because it's been over two years now since, since HBO put that policy in place. And, you know, there's some places that have unofficial policies that are similar, but for whatever reason, no one has jumped on that bandwagon yet to officially announce that, you know, they're requiring intimacy coordinators, which is surprising because you'd think everyone would would want to be like, you know, virtue signaling, like, I am a proponent of a safer work environment, but it hasn't happened yet. I've got to know how this work, this regular setting of expectations and boundaries, you have checking in, being specifically intentional, how has that sort of thinking and practicing made its way into your life? You, <laughs> I mean, facilitating what can be very uncomfortable conversations all the time, I imagine your loved ones always know where you stand on stuff, sexy or not, right? I mean, is that true? They probably know too much, yeah. Um, <laughs> I have very strong boundaries. I was already doing work in that kind of realm before I became an intimacy coordinator because I was a sex and relationship coach. So I was already teaching people how to do this stuff in a different space, right? So it's something that I've been passionate about. Yeah, it's one of those things where like, once you learn it, you kind of just like integrate it into who you are and how you move in the world. That's a nice perk of the job. <laughs> Amanda Blumenthal, thank you so much for talking to me. You're very welcome. You can see more of Amanda's work at intimacyprofessionalsassociation.com. When we get back. A lot of women on Twitter wrote that they never even knew that their hair could do that. They saw the hairstyle created on Issa and it really made them rethink the beauty of their hair. Felicia Leatherwood, the hairstylist for Issa Rae from HBO's Insecure on the power and elegance of textured hair. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're meeting people who work behind the scenes to make the shows you watch really great. In the final segment, you'll meet the food illustrator for the Great British Bake Off, but now meet the master of textured hair. Black actors and actors of color haven't always had their hair treated kindly in the stylist's chair. Straighteners and wigs are often used instead of sculpting the hair as it naturally is. If you've seen HBO's Insecure, 
You've seen its star and creator Issa Rae and her absolutely beautiful natural hair styled in ways that take your breath away. That's thanks to Issa's hairstylist, Felicia Leatherwood. We talked earlier this week and I asked her to tell me her earliest memory of hair. Oh man, earliest memories of hair. Well, <laughs> that goes all the way back to like five years old. <laughs> the torture of having your own hair done, you know? Having to get your hair combed was like the worst process as a child because people didn't really, there weren't a lot of products like we have now for textured hair. And my mom kind of didn't know what to do with my hair. It was, my hair was a little different because her hair was a bit straighter and my hair was a lot more kinkier and coarser. So I just remember having kind of a difficult time trying to figure it out as a kid, you know? So jump into the future where your little kid self, if she could see you now, would probably be pretty impressed. How did you go from five years old cringing at your hair being done to working with Issa Rae on Insecure? Well, I think that five-year-old cringing is what created who I am today and, and what I do in terms of, of working with celebrities and working with Issa and working on Insecure really gave me that avenue in which I could create and show women how they can look with their natural hair and feel empowered and inspired to do other things with their hair. Um, a lot of women on Twitter wrote that they never even knew that their hair could do that. They saw the hairstyles created on Issa and it really made them rethink the beauty of their hair. Will you talk a bit about what it's like during a taping of Insecure, how it goes? Like, how much information do you know about the scene that you're working on or the episode and the wardrobe or the script? How does that all work? So basically, you know, we get a, a script and you, and you read it. And then I plan my hairstyles according to what's happening in each scene. I decided to make kind of like a flip book of styles and have her go through each one and, and kind of pick the styles that she liked the most. Um, and then I matched those with scenes that uh, were coming up and I would always put my own twist on the style. So let's say if it was like a ponytail, you know, I didn't just make a ponytail. Maybe I added a little jewelry to it, a braid on the side, something different just to show what you could do uh, with a ponytail. And it's been fun because you get to see with curly, kinky, coily, wavy hair can really do when it hasn't been straightened. You get to create so many hairstyles from that texture. You make me think about uh, how Issa is Senegalese. Are there ways that you incorporate her background into her hairstyles? All the time. All the time because she is Senegalese. I mean, I think all the braided styles pay a lot of homage to the African ancestral culture of who she is. And so even when we did like the Met Gala, that was a huge thing. That was a couple of years ago. I think the uh, theme of it was celestial. It had to do with uh, the Catholic Church and the Pope. And during that time, you know, Africans were enslaved uh, along with being Christian and Catholic. And so what we did for the Met Gala a couple of years ago was we brought in her heritage, her Senegalese 
heritage into her hairstyle and did beautiful cornrow design with Kari shells embedded in it. And so that was really just to pay, pay that period of time reflected what was happening um, as it relates to Africans and to Black people and how they wore their hair. I'd like to go back into the, well, the, the room where it happens. When you're with Issa and you're doing your hair for a scene, how much time do you have to do it? Uh, it's quick. I honestly, I remember one time we did about seven hairstyles in a course of, well, I think I, I did the hairstyles five minutes each maybe five to eight minutes, which is quick. I'm pretty fast though. I really do compete with myself when it comes to time management on hair. Um, And the reason why is because I never want to hold up the actor. I never want to hold up the production uh, or the directing of it or any parts of it. I never want it to fall on hair, you know? So for me, it's about getting them in, getting them out and making them look great and feel good in the process of, so that when they hit, the camera, when they come in front of the camera, not only is is my client, the actor, happy, the director, the photographer, the lighting, everybody plays a part in this. And I want them to also feel good. And for the people who are watching that, I want to represent the natural hair community in a way that highlights what we can do with our hair. When you talk about feeling competitive with yourself, it makes me wonder, are there ever any visions that you have for a style that maybe intimidate you isn't the right word, but are you ever sort of raising the bar for yourself and trying to live up to those standards and maybe like, ah, can I pull this off? All the time, all the time. There's so many times that I envision something in my head and then when I go to execute it, it comes out very different and it stresses me out and I start sweating. And so in that moment, I have to hurry up and like figure it out and flip to something else. That is definitely been uh, just part of being a hairstylist and also being a perfectionist. You want it to look good and you want to make sure that you've executed it in a timely manner. So, yeah, there's been times that I was like, I can do it this way. And then I get into it. and I'm like, hair doesn't want that. (laughs) So (laughs) then I have to figure something else out. It's really interesting. I mean, as you know, haven't you ever seen a hairstyle that you wanted to try but maybe your hair was either too thick or too thin for the style and you didn't find out until you tried it. Or like you don't have the face that you saw yeah. <laughs> wearing the hairstyle in the magazine. <laughs> yeah. So it turns into kind of a thing. And then so you have to know the hair. And so working with Issa for the last seven years, and not just on Insecure, but on her red carpet uh, appearances, on her panel discussions, everything she's done. I know her hair. I've learned her hair. We have a relationship, me and the hair. So... Most of the time, I know what it could do, but there are definitely times that I want to try something else. And that's where it's like, okay, how much time do I have to try this? And if it doesn't work, what could I do instead of that's just as good? I've also learned that certain hairsprays, certain products don't work if we're shooting in the middle of the night and it's a little dewy outside. What happens to the hair? It changes textures. It changes uh, definition. It'll uh, start to droop it'll start to shrink. It does a lot of different things. So these are also things that I make notation about so that I know how to execute it, you know, in the future. I've read a lot of emotional responses from Black people, Black women, especially seeing natural hair being so beautifully represented in your work. Will you talk about what you're hearing from people? How are they responding to the work you do? 
one of the funniest things that I'm sure you've heard was when season one hit, I think it was either season one or season two, people started making jokes about how many times their hair changed. <laughs> like in the morning or afternoon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was it was funny because the way we shoot is out of sequence, of course. It's out of order. Once it's edited, you look at it and you go, wait a minute. Okay, yeah, she had a hair cell at breakfast, one at lunch, and something different at dinner. But then the next season came. And the next season, I was like, okay, Issa, we kind of went too far with all the hairstyles. She's like, okay, okay. We ended up doing it again. So then we found out as much as people thought it was funny, they also loved it. They loved seeing all the different looks and the changes. So they became accustomed to it and they actually looked for it. And I had so many people write to me saying that a lot of times they even watch the show just to see what her hair is going to do. Well, you make me wonder, will you talk about how the hairstyles for Issa's character has changed over the four seasons of Insecure as her character has matured and made her way through this world in L.A.? You know, each season you see her life altering and changing. So I definitely wanted a lot of the hairstyles to reflect where she is now. You know, is she making money? Oh, she's doing her clothing is stepped up a little bit. So then her hair should step up a little bit. You know, she moved into a, a nicer place, but yet her her neighbors still stress her out. The hairstyle has to reflect that growth as well as the responsibilities that she now has in her life. And I think that they do that. I think this last season, you saw the maturity as well as the playfulness of who Issa is on the show. Insecure takes place in L.A., more specifically in Inglewood. And, you know, the place is a character in the show. So I wonder how much of your styling choices are a nod to L.A.? You know what's funny? (laughs) In terms of, like, African-American hairstyles, because we're Hollywood, we're known, Los Angeles is known for the, the, the movie industry, right? So in that industry, most of the women always had their hair straightened. They kept it weaved or straight or, you know, whatever it was, or were wigs. Um, a lot of that is due to the fact that there weren't really any hairstylists on a lot of the shows that knew how to do textured hair. So a lot of women a lot of the African-American actors would just wear a wig or do their own hair, but there was never a culture of hair like that here uh, in Los Angeles, um, especially in Inglewood. It was either braids or you had straight hair weave. So I love that the natural hair community, which emerged really strongly in the year 2000, I was so glad that they started to showcase natural hair all over the world as beautiful, the texture, the waves. Every woman who was straightening their hair before started to let their hair go and be wavy. Even some of my friends, my uh, Latina friends, were like, I stopped straightening my hair. I'm going to rock my natural curly hair now. And so I really think like Insecure and Issa's hair has its own story to tell. It wasn't anything based on a Los Angeles look. It was just based on Issa being a Black woman with textured hair that wasn't interested in straightening her hair. You've also been the hairstylist for many other prominent artists like Ava DuVernay, Will Smith, Jill Scott, Viola Davis. And of course, you've worked with the iconic dreadlocks of Lenny Kravitz. So who else do you want to work with? Well, you know who I would like to work with a little bit more is a Wumi from Lovecraft Country, 
And I love her texture. She and needs to have similar textures, and I love that. Everybody else, I started a company, believe it or not, called Texture Management. And what Texture Management is, is a representation of about 19 hairstylists and makeup artists from all over the world who are very talented professionals that are catering to the um, Black celebrities in Hollywood. So as I'm stepping down, I am stepping them up to the forefront. So that's where I'm headed (laughs) in terms of uh, staying in the game, but being a little bit more on the management side of things. A lot of people may feel really tempted to get into your line of work. And at the same time, I imagine that this is a very competitive field. And in this era of COVID, everything's weird. And so for those who see your work and feel inspired and feel like they're forming their own creative signature and think they could do what you do, what would you say to them? You know, I talk to younger women. They always ask me, well, how did you get where you are? And I told them that I simply just visualized it. I simply saw myself traveling. I saw my name. I would go to movie theaters. And at the end, when the credits were rolling and it came up to here, I would put my name there. It was a destiny for me to be who I am and to have this life. It became that. Uh, All the people I needed to meet lined up. Everything I needed to show up started showing up. And I simply just needed to be ready to do the work. And that's what it's been for me. I love what I do. The best thing about it is connecting with the people. I learn from them. They learn from me. And so I really think that when you have a pure, uh, purely good intention for your career, that's what comes into fruition. And so I know it sounds very airy-fairy, but it's definitely how I've created my life. And it's, it's worked pretty well uh, for me. Well, Felicia Leatherwood, I congratulate you on your well-earned success. I can't wait to see what you do next and with whom you do it. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Have a beautiful day. You can see Felicia's tutorials and keep up with her at FeliciaLeatherwood.com. After the break. A fifth of the population were watching it, you know, 15 million people and stuff. So, yeah, it's quite hard to kind of get your head around that, that that many people were seeing your drawings. Hear how the illustrator for the Great British Bake Off got this dream job and how he gets it done, no matter how the bake turns out. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. The final segment of our show featuring people who work behind the scenes to make a show great is Tom Hovey. You may not know his name, but if you've been trying to avoid the stressful reality of being a human being lately by binge watching The Great British Bake Off, then you have seen and know and love his food illustrations underneath comforting voiceovers like this. Laura's contrasting her fiery sausage quiche with a lighter edition, goat's cheese, pea, and asparagus. I wondered about how these drawings were done, pen or tablet, and what's the process like, production-wise? And how does he draw these beautiful works of art when in the show they may come out, well, not so beautifully? First, how did Tom get this dream job? I'd been a kind of budding illustrator for a couple of years. My girlfriend, who's now my wife, and I decided to move down to London and just 
um, see if we could kind of get a bit more work and, you know, just kind of be where it obviously all is. So we moved down. I didn't have any work lined up, but a friend of mine worked in TV production. They were looking for people to help edit a new TV show. And so with no kind of real experience or knowledge or anything like that, I just kind of winged it and got in. And um, it turned out to be the first series of Bake Off. And a couple of weeks in, they kind of, through the process of editing the first show, they realized that there was some visual element missing from the show to help viewers understand what was really happening, you know, what, what's actually being created. So they asked me to come up with some sketches as if the bakers had doodled something in their kitchen notebook to say, this is what I'm planning to do. So, so yeah, and that's, and that's how it started. Without your illustrations, there wouldn't be that tension of, are they going to make it? It's the tangible thing that we can all wrap our heads around as we're watching this show. And I, I'm glad that they were uh, receptive enough to know that, <laughs> that they should have these illustrations. And at the same time, I wonder, and I know I'm speaking to you, and so you may be biased, but if there weren't these illustrations, I wonder to what degree the show wouldn't be as massively successful as it is. Well, yeah, of course it is. It definitely would have tanked. Failed. It wouldn't have made it past the first season. <laughs> For sure. It's obviously hard for me to quantify what the influence has been on anything because it's always just been this abstract concept, really. The amount of people that watch it and all that kind of stuff. And it's, you know, it was the most watched show in the UK, you know, so a fifth of the population were watching it, you know, 15 million people and stuff. So, yeah, it's quite hard to kind of get your head around that, that that many people were seeing your drawings. So. Can we talk about process now? I know that your process has evolved over all the years that this has been on. But for this season, how does it go for you? I understand they, they send you some pictures and you're not in the tent at all. So the process works that they have food researchers on site when the bakers have finished baking uh, each challenge. And before it's judged, there's kind of about an hour of or however long it takes to tidy up the tent. Because obviously it's just a complete bomb site. At that point, they can go around and take lots of photos of each bake um, from all the different angles just so that I can kind of see the whole thing. And then they take another set of photos after judging so that you can see like the interiors of the cakes and stuff. And then they upload them all and, you know, label everything, uh, send me the, the pack. And, and so from that point, I can start drawing. So that's why it starts kind of in like May for me, you know the edits can take months and obviously there's 10 shows so they're all kind of working consecutively so how do you deal with it drawing wise when the bakes don't go nearly as well as they've been planned when the uh, researchers are sending us all the photos they're also kind of taking notes in the tent and send me kind of a breakdown of what each person's done and if they've achieved what they wanted to achieve you know that's a nice way to put it yeah <laughs> so there's whoever's you know missed off the you know chocolate curls on the top they only did two layers they meant to do three that sort of stuff and, and most of the time it um, it kind of helps us but you know from our point of view we're drawing from photographs we we know nothing about baking so they're like oh yes they missed off the decor layer of blah, blah blah i'm like i have no idea what that is and i personally don't have the time to start googling what decor you know all that sort of stuff is so I just need them to send me detailed instructions of this, this, and this. And then, and even then it might not help. So we get the bakers now to take as many photographs of their practice bakes 
Swifty, you know, kind of nailed the kicks at home, which, you know, because they've got however much time they want at home. And then I work from them or if nothing's ever gone right for them, then, you know, we get a sketch (laughs) Uh, and just kind of work it out from there. And in the end, the reality is that no one knows what it's actually meant to look like. So, you know, whatever we do is always going to be right because, if they haven't achieved it, then that's, a, <laughs> that's their fault. <laughs> you know, because our, our cakes are meant to represent their intentions, you know, not what they actually created. So there's full artistic license from our point of view. And, you know, and I take as much of it as I want. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you get all those photos that you got to interpret, what photos make you salivate in the sense that you can't wait to draw them? And what photos make you go... <sighs> Okay. <laughs> I prefer things that are, for one, different, something I've never seen before. But also, you know, I really look out for the bakers that do something different, you know, and have a, a genuine kind of like style. Like Helena last year was like amazing. I just loved all her stuff because it was so bonkers. And she just like, no matter what the challenge, she would just make it spooky, you know. But when you've got something like, biscuits and everyone's making you know round cookies you know there's there's nothing you can really do with that your heart does not skip a beat no <laughs> yeah there's not many um there's not much you can do with that <laughs> will you talk about the fact that you and your team will work for so long and when you do see the episodes your drawings flash on the screen for like 5 maybe 6 seconds have you like come to peace with that reality or does it still drive you crazy? Tell me about that. From my point of view, uh, I approach every illustration like it could be frozen and looked at. Because a lot of people do screen grab it. It is a funny thing. And I try not to think about it. But I also think if there's a point where I've had to let stuff go and it not be as perfect as I want, then at least it's only on the screen for six seconds. <laughs> <laughs> In the before times when human beings would meet up in small enclosed spaces like (laughs) restaurants and living rooms, when you would meet someone and it would come up some way that you were the illustrator for the Great British Bake Off, how would people respond? Generally, either they're super interested or they don't watch it. (laughs) If you speak to my wife, she's constantly trying to dine out on it and everyone she ever meets turns out to not be a fan you know so tumbling yeah <laughs> but yeah no it, it's it's definitely a good conversation style see if i were to meet you out and about and you told me that you were the illustrator for the great british bake-off i would throw out all my pride and i would tell you that my favorite food on the planet is the onion and i'd buy you a drink or whatever you're having and i'd find the closest paper napkin and a pen and i would ask you to sketch out an onion does anything at all like that happen to you or am I very strange? Uh, no one's asked me to draw an onion, I've got to say. Yeah, I don't know if I've drawn for a job even. <laughs> <laughs> what? I'm surprised. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no one's actually asked me to draw anything. <laughs> I would have crossed that line. I have a very limited supply of shame. Now, when you pull your camera back and you take a big picture look at where you're at right now with the work that you do, 
you know, you've been working almost nonstop on the Great British Bake Off for 10 years. Your style is distinct. The show is a great big hit. And now that you're on Connecticut Public Radio, you can say that you've made it to the big time. But you also know that, like anything, you've had some luck along the way. So I wonder, when you look at everything, how much of your success is the work you've put into it? And how much do you think is luck? I think the good luck was taking the job as a logger in the in the first instant and getting in for Bake Off. Everything else is hard work, you know, because that's kind of all it takes. And I think that's the same with a lot of people. You only need that one kind of opportunity and then you take it, you know. The rest is keeping the job basically. And that was and that was it for a lot of the time. I thought every year I'd get sacked or, you know, something like that. So fear is a component to good luck, hard work, and total soul-sucking dread. A hundred percent, yeah. I think if you're comfortable, then, you know, what's pushing you to push things up and push things forward and make things look better? Absolutely. I think you, you've got to have an answer of fear. And I think also just being a freelancer is just fear every day that you're not going to you know pay the bills or whatever you know that was always the fear and always will be and I, and I think in these times you know we didn't we weren't even sure that this was going to get filmed this year you know there was a chance that it wasn't going to get filmed you know and I'd have just been relying on government help to pay the rent for the year because it's my wage for nine months of the year you know so obviously I could have found a few other jobs but the reality is, is that I'm just really lucky that they that they made it work but I know a lot, a lot of people are really struggling. You know, a lot of my friends in, the, you know, in this industry are really struggling and who's, who's paying out for illustration and stuff. So it's a very fine balance. But I've got here because I worked really hard to keep it and to get here and all that kind of stuff. But it's hard. It's definitely hard to see that from the inside out, you know. Now, one of the things I love asking people who do really interesting jobs is what the child version of themselves would say about what they do now? I think you'd say, cool, uh, well done. <laughs> Quite honestly, I always wanted to be some form of artist. It was always what my parents would, you know, put in a pencil and paper in front of me. It was a way of getting me to shut up and sit down type thing. I'm one of three brothers. I'm the middle and I was the the one that would just never stop uh, running around and being a nuisance. So yeah, it's either like 100 miles an hour or uh, drawing. So yeah, I, I never had any interest in doing anything else throughout school or anything like that. You know, I did okay in my exams and stuff, but that was only just a way of getting out of school. Basically, I left as soon as I could at uh, 16 and went and did art courses and stuff. So, so yeah, I think he'd be super happy with what I'm doing now. I think he'd be amazed at all the stuff that I'm doing because I basically don't draw on pen and paper anymore. Everything's digital. I think you'd be amazed. Like my my kids are, you know, amazed whenever they come in and want to help drawing and you know. All over the <laughs> do you what do you use for your technology? I mean, I animate a little bit and I use an iPad Pro with a Apple Pencil. What do you use? It's a digital drawing tablet. Basically, I've got slowly bigger and bigger over the years. And yeah, it's, I do have an iPad Pro that I use for like a digital sketchbook and stuff. But generally, everything is drawn on the Wacom tablet. So I used to draw basically the, all the line work in pen uh, and scan it in and then color stuff digitally, which, you know, is obviously a lot of process and, you know, would create 
massive box files full of uh, paper, you know, at the end of every series. I did a like a coloring book in 2016. It was just the black line work. So obviously there was no color on it. So it was black and white. So after drawing it all and zooming in, realizing that the pens I used flicked off little tiny little dots. And it took me and my intern like three weeks of zooming in at 300% of deleting every little dot that I'd created of all these artworks. And I was like, I'm done with pens. <laughs> <laughs> and immediately, I immediately went out and bought a drawing tablet, you know. So from that point on, I have not really drawn with a pen. Unless it was like on a napkin in a bar with some lady asked you to draw an onion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. My sketchbooks are just mainly onions. So. <laughs> All right. So here's, I'm going to end our conversation with the bombshell headline about you. I've read that though you are a massive foodie, you're just not that into cakes, desserts, or pretty much anything you see on Bake Off. Yeah, this is true. I mean, I eat bread. Um, you know. <laughs> but yeah like desserts and stuff no yeah for sure if I go out for a meal with my wife I just don't have a dessert cheap date absolutely I'm a, I'm a like three starters guy <laughs> <laughs> well it's good to know that while you're doing this work you're not being constantly tempted psychologically that wouldn't be good for you no exactly not to say that I don't sit here stuff in my face but I try and eat healthy snacks nowadays. It used to be like bags of sweets, uh, Haribo and all that sort of stuff. But now it's healthy. Yeah. You're a healthy dad now. <laughs> oh, God, I have to be. Yeah, healthy hipster. <laughs> well, Tom Hovey, illustrator for the Great British Bake Off. Congratulations on your success. And thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. While Tom's work only flashes on the screen for a moment, you can see his work and order prints of your own at tomhovey.co.uk. That's tomhovey, H-O-V-E-Y.co.uk. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. To subscribe and listen back to previous shows about what it's like to be a world-famous meme to be married for over 50 years, to not be able to feel physical pain, or to be a 99-year-old transgender World War II veteran who changed government policies and set two world records, visit ctpublic.org audacious. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf. And you can email me at cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. <laughs>